Greetings and welcome to the Fiby, your favorite source for rapid fire board game reviews. We have a wonderful episode for you, starting off with Christy discussing Sushi Go Party, John reviews Century Gollum Edition, I talk about Cascadia, Sarah reviews Amending, and Meepa Lady discusses Animal Upon Animal. Many of you listening to the Five By might have extended families who know about your board gaming hobby and consider you to be their resident gaming expert. If you're lucky, they expect you to bring games to holidays and get-togethers so that folks can play something together. This is the case for me and my in-laws, so I've managed my collection accordingly over the years knowing that I need light games, especially ones that can accommodate more than four players. One such game that has stayed in my collection since it came out in 2016 is the card game Sushi Go Party, published by GameRight and designed by Phil Walker-Harding. Sushi Go Party has much the same feel as its predecessor, Sushi Go, which Mike reviewed in episode 45. In fact, all the classic cards from Sushi Go are included in Sushi Go Party, so you can recreate the exact game if you want to, and the rulebook tells you which cards to use. So what's going on in these games about sushi? The object of the game is to enjoy the best meal by scoring the most points. There are different kinds of cards that score points in various ways. Nigiri are worth points straight up. Sashimi and tempura score points in sets. Maki and tamaki score according to who has the most rolls of that type. Dumplings reward you for having a lot of them. Onigiri rewards you for collecting different unique shapes, and so on. Some of the cards, like the edamame and miso soup, score according to who else at the table has played those cards. These card types are generally interchangeable, and the rulebook suggests eight different combos to try, which is great for replayability. The way you collect cards is through drafting, although the game box, which is actually a tin, wisely describes this for a general audience as pick and pass. To set up the game, you select a menu of card types from the choices in the rulebook, or you can pick out your own cards according to the guidance that it gives you. You play by taking a card and passing the rest of your hand to the person next to you. You keep drafting until all the cards are gone, and you play for three rounds. At the end of each round, you score the cards you have in front of you, and then most of the cards get put back into the deck. There is one category of card that will stay out in front of you between rounds, and those are the dessert cards. Dessert cards are not scored until the end of the game, so even though you're scoring the other cards at the end of each round, someone could still pull ahead at the end based on their dessert cards. The desserts are things like pudding, fruit, and green tea ice cream. My favorite card in the game is the menu card, which lets you draw four cards from the deck and keep one, giving you special access to cards that are not being used in the current round. Sushi Go Party's art by Nan Rangzima is adorable. Each little food item has a little face, and the cheerful vibe of the art matches the light gameplay. The splashy design of the metal tin makes the game look really upbeat and appealing. Sushi Go Party comes with a board and some tiles that you can put on the board to remind everyone which types are in the deck, and as a visual person, I really appreciate that. The tiles also remind players how each card type is scored. Fun art is something that Sushi Go Party really needs because even with a variety of cards, the gameplay is so light that it would fall flat otherwise. Some people think that it falls flat anyway, it just depends on what kind of games you enjoy. Of course, you take your tableau into account as you play, but there's just not a ton of planning involved. For the crunchier gamers among us, any version of Sushi Go is going to be too light, and the choices are not going to feel meaningful enough to be interesting to them. 
I think there is a place for games that are just not very intense or stressful when I'm in the mood for them. Sometimes you just want to kick back and enjoy people's company, and this is exactly that type of game. Less experienced gamers are also able to get started quickly, which is always nice. Setup and Teardown for Sushi Go Party does require some card sorting. You have to fish out each type of card at the beginning and sort them all out at the end. Nothing terrible, but for a game as light as Sushi Go, there are others that are faster to get started. I do think that compared to regular Sushi Go, the extra setup time is worth it to get the added card variety. The best player counts, in my opinion, are 4 or 5 players, although it's pretty flexible. 6 works, but it's harder to keep track of everyone. And fewer than 4 is still functional, but the drafting just doesn't pop as much, especially with 2. There is a menu in the rulebook specifically recommended for 2 players, which I have tried, but I would still reach for Tides of Time first as a two-player drafting game, but Sushi Go Party shines with larger groups. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening! Looming over the horizon, a giant stone golem marches slowly across the land. On its yellow, grass-covered back stands a two-story home. Pink and blue crystals the size of boulders adorn its back. Welcome to the Colorful World of Century Golem Edition. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Century Golem Edition is a game from designer Emerson Matsuchi and published by Plan B Games. In Century Golem Edition, players use cards to acquire and upgrade crystals in order to use those crystals to claim golem cards which are worth points at the end of the game. Each player starts off with their own hand of two cards, some starting crystals, and a caravan card on which to store 10 crystals. One of the two cards in your hand at the beginning of the game lets you collect two yellow crystals from the supply. The other card lets you upgrade two crystals one step up on the crystal hierarchy or upgrade one crystal two steps up. There's a hierarchy of crystals in Century Golem Edition with yellow crystals at the bottom followed by green, blue, and pink at the top. Trading crystals is at the heart of the game and there are plenty more cards to add to your deck that let you trade and upgrade crystals. There is an offer of five merchant cards on the table and instead of playing a card you may acquire one of these. The leftmost card is always free to take, but if you want to take anything to the right of the first card, you must leave a crystal on every card you skip. Those crystals will be picked up by whoever takes a card, sometimes creating a juicy pile of crystals on unpopular cards. The trick of the game is to acquire the merchant cards that will help you efficiently convert your crystals into the right crystals you need in order to claim golem cards from the face-up offer of golem cards. So, on your turn you are either playing one of your cards in order to claim crystals from the supply, or you are upgrading or exchanging crystals from the caravan to crystals of a different color and or quantities. For example, on a previous turn you might have acquired a card that lets you exchange three yellow crystals for three green crystals, but you're out of yellow crystals, so you play a card that lets you collect four crystals from the supply. On your next turn you plan on playing that card that lets you trade three yellow for three green, but you remember that trades can happen as many times as you are able to do so. So if you get two more yellow crystals, you could trade six yellow for six green at once in a couple more turns. You can take those green crystals and in a later turn play a card to trade three green crystals for three blue crystals. And you can do that twice. Ending up with six blue crystals is great because you have a card that lets you trade blue for pink in sets of two, which is perfect because there's a 20 point golem card up for grab that requires, you guess it, four pink crystals. But you look around the table and it looks like the other players have their eyes set on that same golem card and are also working towards getting pink crystals. Do you pivot and work towards grabbing a different golem? Will you be able to utilize your card engine to get there before they do? This is when the wheels in your head start churning and it's such a great feeling.
I really enjoy this style of gameplay, not only striving to create an efficient deck of cards, but also being mindful of what other players are doing. That's the conflict between players in this game, and it's not so much in your face conflict as it is, I see what you're doing there, I just need to be able to do it more efficiently than you. And speaking of conflict, I love the peaceful depictions of the people and golems in the artwork. The merchant cards feature a racially diverse roster of people, carrying out trade, working in mines to collect soul crystals, etc. The golem cards depict the giant stone and crystal creations as helpful beings. One lights the way for errant ships as a lighthouse. Another one stomps grapes and makes wine. There's one that's carrying two people out of a raging fire. The art is bright, full of color, and hope. The illustrations are by Justin Chan and Chris Williams, and they are phenomenal. The crystals in the game are these big, plastic, translucent crystals, and they really add a nice tactile element to the game. The included diamond-shaped bowls are a nice touch to keep everything organized. The game even includes metal coins, and overall, it's a really nice package. The game plays up to five players, but I prefer it at any other player count than that. At five players, the game tends to take a bit too long, especially if you play with AP-prone players, but that can probably be said about most games, so take that for what it's worth. Century Golem Edition is a rethemed implementation of Century Spice Road, and they are basically the same game with different art and cubes instead of crystals. At the time of this recording, both Spice Road and Golem Edition are available, so just go with whatever theme appeals to you the most. Although we all know that manga-inspired Iron Giant-esque golems beat spices any day of the week. Plan B, the publishers have also put out two other games in the same Caravania universe as Century Golem Edition, Century Golem Eastern Mountains, and Century Golem Edition An Endless World. Wow, that's a mouthful. I'm running out of breath and time, so I hope you'll check out Century Golem Edition sometime soon. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hello friends, I can't think of a much better game to cover today on this cold and damp afternoon than Cascadia. If you closed your eyes to avoid looking at all the buildings and pollution, and closed your ears to the noise pollution, okay, fine. I doubt anyone can mistake urban, subhumid, bordering on high desert Utah with lush, virgin Cascadia. But the theme brings back many good memories of my honeymoon and other trips to the Pacific Northwest. And sure, sure, we've been through this enough times, I'm sure you all know by now that the nature themes and the art drew me to this game. As did local to Cascadia designer Randy Flynn, who is making a bit of a design name for himself these days. Same with Cascadia-based publisher Flat Out Games, and we all know and love the art from Cascadia-based artist Beth Sobel. I'm sensing a theme. Anyway, in Cascadia we are drafting habitat tiles with wildlife tokens in an attempt to build the best environment. This doesn't always mean that most diverse environment though, no matter what the rulebook tries to tell you. Because here's how you get your points. You get points by drafting and putting together the tiles in your play space. Most of the tiles have two terrains on them split down the hexagonal middle. So you get points for your largest contiguous corridors for each of the five habitats. Mountains, forests, plains, wetlands, and rivers. As y'all can probably guess, this is the part that got me stoked. And there's little I like more than a spatial puzzle. Furthermore, if you have the largest contiguous corridor of a given habitat type, you get bonus points depending upon the number of players. There may also be a bonus for second place depending upon player count. Have I gotten a bonus for all types in one game? No. But I did get a bonus for four of the five in a four-player game, so that's gotta count for something. You also get points for placing the wildlife tokens that come with the habitat tile you selected. 
Okay, technically it's kind of 50-50 for what you're aiming for that round. Sometimes you really want that tile, sometimes you really want that token. They're all randomized, so it's not really obvious as to which is the best choice for you. Though when those perfectly matched tiles come out, they get snatched up quickly. So you gotta be thinking ahead. You're trying to create patterns of animal tokens on the landscapes you're building. For instance, Roosevelt Elk are some of my favorite to use. They all want to be in a straight line across the landscape. So as you're building your landscape and paying attention to your wildlife corridors, you have to keep that in mind. Sure, you can expand your prairie by putting that tile there, but it only has a spot for a bear or a fox, and that would break up your elk path you're trying to create. Best to find another place to put it or pick a different tile. Alternatively, you could pick the perfect tile to expand your marshlands, but it comes with a fox, and you have no tiles that allow for foxes or a good placement of a fox. This means you can take the tile, but you'll discard the token, and that's just throwing away points. There are some ways to get around this. The best is to plan ahead. The next best is to turn in your nature token. Nature token? What's that? Corporate Earth Day greenwashing? Well, not quite. Nature tokens are earned when you complete a keystone tile. Keystone tiles are distinctive tiles because they have only one habitat on them and only one wildlife marker, meaning they accept only one wildlife token. When you choose this habitat and place it near your environment, well, nothing happens. But if on that turn or a later turn you place the wildlife that the habitat accepts, congratulations, you get a nature token. These are worth one point at the end of the game. Alternatively, you can spend them on your turn to reset all the wildlife tokens of the biro, or to break the rules stating that you must take the tile and the token as a pair. Now you can mix and match. It's pretty powerful, but make sure you don't waste them as they're important endgame, but you'll still want to ROI that out to make sure you're still making the most optimal move. Gameplay continues like this until 20 rounds have passed, then count up the scores and the player with the highest score wins. So, what do I like about Cascadia? Well, the aforementioned art and theme. That it's tiling, but it's a simple tiling. Placement rules are much simpler than, say, Carcassonne. You don't have to match anything, you just have to have one side connect. But like the depth of how you want to connect things is still there. The wildlife placement points make sense. Bears want to be in pairs, but not near other bears. Hawks want to be solo away from other hawks. Salmon want to follow the river, so in a line, but in a line that can meander, etc. I like that there are different rule card options that would change up how each animal is scored, but after several plays, my family has still no interest in changing that up yet. I also like that four player didn't take much longer than two player. It's a fast and friendly game that my whole family enjoyed. I like that the player interaction was relegated to, darn, you took that tile I wanted. Hate drafting and negative interactions really aren't a thing here, but it's also not multiplayer solitaire. What don't I like? Well, very little. It took a bit for me to wrap my head around the placement rules for animals that don't want to be near anyone else. So initially I thought I had to surround the pair of bears for them to score, which would have been a lot of work for very few points. But it turns out, just don't have bear tokens next to them and you're good to go with the points. You can even have empty tile that accepts a bear token next to them, but as long as there isn't a bear there, then it's all good. I think the solo game is okay, but not amazing. I miss playing with my family when I tried it. I also dislike that at this point most of us seem to be going for elk and salmon, but maybe switching the scoring cards would change that. So that's Cascadia. Like I said, a fast, friendly, colorful tile laying plus a little game. Do I see it replacing Kark as an intro to tile laying? Mmm, it's certainly a possibility. So go out and give it a try. No worries about missing the Kickstarter edition. All that's missing with retail are five scoring option cards that you can get from AEG anyway, so seriously, give it a try. This has been Mike for the 5 by. 
I first encountered Xingyin Kuo's work in A Field Guide to Memory, which she co-designed with Jian Shim and which I reviewed in episode 106 of the 5 by Both Shim and Kuo have continued to design solo RPGs. Kuo's follow-up work, Amending, is the most innovative RPG I've ever encountered. Published in 2021, Amending is a solo RPG about a journey. You play a person traveling to see a long-lost friend. The game comes with a map and a deck of cards. You start by marking your home and your friend's home on the map. Every day you draw a card with a prompt, either something that happens along the way or something to think about regarding the friendship. Then you write down your response to the prompt and mark your progress on the map. And here's what makes amending so innovative. The map is printed on fabric, it's a cloth map, and you mark it by sewing or embroidering. Occasionally, the prompt will tell you to sew something specific, say, a button or bead. But most of the time, you can sew whatever you want. A running stitch to mark your path, decorative stitching to fill in the landscape, whatever feels right to you. The game ends when you reach your friend's home, however long that takes. And when you're done, you have the completed map to wear as a scarf, turn into a pillow, whatever you want. The name itself is a play on words. Amending. Amending. Get it? When I call Amending the most innovative RPG I've ever encountered, I have to concede that I'm not an expert on the range of RPG design. You may be listening to this and thinking, hey, what about some other wildly innovative RPG? And if you are, please contact me. I'd love to hear about those other games. Core calls Amending a keepsake game, meaning the gameplay process produces a memorable physical object. And this concept of playing an RPG by sewing is so creative and so appealing, I kind of can't believe no one had done it before. It's just such a great idea. Now, I have to make a confession here. As much as I love the idea of a sewing RPG, and I do love it, I did not play it that way. I live in a very small house, and early in the pandemic, I did a major clear-out of stuff that was taking up space, including getting rid of a large collection of embroidery tools and supplies that I hadn't used in many years. Then Amending launched on Kickstarter, and I knew I had to play it, but I couldn't justify rebuying all those supplies for one project. So I played Amending with the paper map, which was an alternate option in the Kickstarter. To make myself feel better about not sewing, I colored in the map with pens, and I have to admit, I really like how it's turned out. I like to imagine the little world of the map springing to life, the colors filling in square by square, as my character moves through the landscape. Amending is intended as a solitary experience, but two friends and I decided to play the game together. Well, not exactly together. We're playing separately, but we're photographing each entry and sharing them with each other. I guess you could say we're playing concurrently. We also decided to play once a week rather than daily, as the rules suggest. It's a commitment to do this every day for weeks, a month, maybe more. We thought once a week would be more manageable, though even that has been a struggle at times. But we keep going and forgive each other for intermittent gaps, and I really like amending at this pace. Rather than a burst of intense activity that lasts a few weeks and then is over, this is a journey that's become part of my life for months. And it's been fun to share this with friends to see how their journeys develop. One of them chose a fantasy setting, and it's been fascinating to see how that makes her story different and not different. I myself kind of haven't decided yet where my story takes place, whether a historical, fantastical, or a modern setting. The nice thing about an open-ended storytelling game like this is you don't have to make decisions like that until you're ready. 
Amending is a game about slowly building the story of a friendship. And as the game goes on, it also becomes an examination of your sense of what friendship is. You start with nothing, no character sheet, just a map and some cards. And one card at a time, you write the story of a friend who means the world to you. Or does she? That's up to you, actually. The beauty of RPGs for me is the sense of creating the story as you go, driven by the moment rather than a pre-planned structure, then looking back and seeing that you've shaped a coherent whole, embodied characters who became three-dimensional and lived lives with meaning. In Amending, the map is your keepsake of those characters and their story. The original printing of Amending is unfortunately sold out, but you can download digital files from Core's itch.io page. There are files for both the paper and the cloth map and advice on how to print both. There's no suggested price, so you can pay what you think is fair, even download for free if you wanted, but I hope you won't do that. Even when times are tough, it has to be worth at least something to support the designer of this remarkably innovative game. And that's Amending, a game that changed my idea of what an RPG could be. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you want to see my colored-in map. I'll post a photo of it on release day. When small kids enjoy something, they more than likely want to keep doing it over and over again. Cue the Encanto music playing 24-7 in vehicles and households alike. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So when a child enjoys a board game, wouldn't it be great if it's a board game that even adults will enjoy? Animal Upon Animal, a game designed by Klaus Miltenberger and published by Haba Games in 2005, is a dexterity game that is delightfully simple and yet so much fun to play. The game plays two to four players for people aged four and up, and it comes in a box about the size of a personal pan pizza box in the characteristically bright yellow box that Haba is known for. The game comes with 29 wooden animal figures, one die, and a rulebook. And that's it! The wooden figurines range from one crocodile, which is placed in the middle of the table, and an assortment of animals for each player. A snake, sheep, toucan, hedgehog, lizard, monkey, and a penguin. The colorful animals are carefully cut out of wood, complete with smooth and jagged edges, perfect for the goal of the game. To be the first to stack all your animals in a vertical wall style in the center of the table, starting with a crocodile base. Everyone will be stacking their animals into the same creation. On your turn, you roll the die. It can either tell you to stack one or two animals. You get to pick from your pile of animals. Rolling a crocodile means you must place an animal at the mouth or tail of the crocodile, extending the base for gameplay. Rolling a hand symbol tells you to choose an animal and give it to another player, and they must stack it. A question mark means that other players must choose an animal from your pile for you to stack. If at any time during your turn you stack an animal that doesn't stay put, or that it manages to knock off another animal, take those two animals back into your pile. If more than two animals fall off, then pick two animals to take back and return the rest to the box. If for some reason all the animals fall down without any intervention, return all the animals to the box and start fresh again with the crocodile base. Once you've taken your turn, pass a die, and the next player takes their turn. The game ends when someone successfully stacks all of their animals. Games are usually pretty quick, lasting about 15 minutes and at most 30 minutes. So what makes Animal Upon Animal appealing? It's pure, unadulterated fun. As a young child, the instinct to stack things appears at a young age, and this takes that to the next level in the form of gameplay. Their little fingers make them perfect stackers, and they're probably looking at the animals differently than adults, 
And honestly, they're probably not as nervous as adults to make the perfect stacking choice. Kids are making quick decisions and enjoying stacking that monkey upside down. Plus, young kids love animals. For older children and adults, this is a more strategic Jenga. The tension is real. Our palms are sweaty, our knees are weak, arms are heavy, but our larger fingers might be at a disadvantage in balancing these little wooden creatures, creating both chaos during gameplay and joy when you succeed stacking that toucan on its beak between the sheep and monkey. Every game I've played has been such a blast. There's always so much laughter. People get really into stacking, especially when it's quasi-wonky pieces. And more often than not, someone from those games will always end up buying Animal Upon Animal to play with their own families. The game retails for about $25 online, so it can fit into a lot of families' entertainment budgets. This is a game your family and friends will continue playing for years to come. Considering the game is from 2005, it definitely has a long shelf life. I've pulled Animal Upon Animal out for game night, with both adults and our children. The wooden pieces make the game durable, and it's a game you can quickly pull out and teach time and again. Kids love it because it's fun, and adults love it because it's fun too. Plus, it's a game where adults can just gather around the table, consume adult beverages, and enjoy rooting for our opponent's penguin to come tumbling down. But ultimately, there's something so satisfying about seeing an ever-expanding jigsaw puzzle wall of animals successfully stay put, teetering on feet and beaks. And that's Animal Upon Animal. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! You've been listening to the 5 by, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 games. From all of us at the 5 thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.